Did your latest AWS bill give you a heart attack? Cloud Forecast sends you daily transparent reports that help you understand your AWS cost, find any overspends, and promote opportunities to save costs. Cloud Forecast takes complicated data and produces accurate, presentable reports so you can share stats quickly and make strategic decisions swiftly. With communication integrations like Slack, Microsoft Teams, and email to share insights, you can go from managing your AWS spend in hours to seconds. Start a 30-day free trial today. No credit card is required to get started at cloudforecast.io. Hey, everyone. I'm so excited for today's episode. We have Ben Orenstein with us. Ben is co-host of the Art of Product podcast and co-founder of Tuple, which is one of the most admired independent software companies out there today. Um, So excited to have you on, Ben. Thank you. The uh, most admired is an appellation I have not heard before. That's pretty great. Really? I feel like that's kind of how people think of Tuple. It's like as you were saying it, it kind of resonated. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess people do seem to like us. It's it's that weird thing where, like, I am aware of all of our flaws, but people have a more nuanced or, like, a sort of more holistic view of us. <laughs> and I was just thinking, like, of, like, various Twitter threads or, and whatnot. I was like, oh, yeah, I guess people are mostly quite positive. Yeah. So the genesis of this conversation today was we met at Founder Summit um, and you were supposed to give a talk on sales for founders, which is a topic we've talked a lot about on this show and is like a really tough thing um, for first-time founders, especially, you know, a tough thing to learn. And so you were supposed to give a talk on that. Unfortunately, we're unable to. And I was like super excited for that talk and so sad it didn't happen. And so thought it would be really fun if you got a chance to talk about sales for founders here. Yeah, I mean that sounds great. I I have I have the outline. I have, I have a table of contents of a book that I would like kind of wanted to write, but wasn't probably going to follow up with. And I have this talk that almost happened, but then I went on a taco crawl in Mexico City and got quite sick. Don't do that the night before you're supposed to speak. Um, <laughs> and so yeah, I'm I'm stoked to talk about this. I I have I've I've learned some lessons. I think it's it's a bit of a limited data set, given that I have only done sales for one company. But I think. Probably there are some lessons in here that I learned going from like being an engineer who likes efficiency and not understanding procurement and IT and pricing and the sales process and what even is a PO. And I, I think I, I can probably pass on some some stuff that is possibly going to be useful to people. Yeah. I mean, I think that point there is something that <laughs> that really hits home that, you know, Matthias and I talk about is like, wait, why can't they just like sign up online for an account? And I'm like, no, they have like, they have procurement, like you need to use their portal. And like, it's like, why? Why can't we just build something that they can just upload all of those things to and then we do it and then it's automated. And it's like, you cannot automate the bureaucracy of each enterprise company because they're all, they all have their own special way of doing it. And they all want you to conform to their special way of doing it Mm -hmm. and the idea of just signing up for something online is confusingly simple to the point of being impossible yeah so the 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 outline for this book that i was going to write in the intro the sort of the first topic heading is your intuition is right sales is kind of stupid (laughs) like 
I kept fighting it for a while where I was like, but hold on, this just this just this is dumb. This doesn't make sense. Why why can't it work like this? And eventually you sort of just learn to like you can't refactor the sales process of everyone you're talking to. And there are things you can push back on, which I think is kind of an interesting topic as well. But overall, you are dealing with a thing that is inefficient. It is, it is not the most efficient way to, to get this done. And so you need to sort of you need to act accordingly and and respond to that reality rather than fighting it. So you mentioned there's some key lessons that, that you've learned. Um, yeah. What's the high level of those lessons? It's kind of a lot. I would say there's... So, so again, I'll, I'll throw this caveat out there because it's important, which is I have done this for one company. And so our tool is a um, something targeted at developers. So it's adopted by engineering teams. And we make it easy for the teams to come in and get in and try it. And the way our sales process usually gets kicked off is the engineers try it. They like it. They ask someone to buy it over in procurement. They contact sales at Tuple. And then now the sales process has begun. So yeah, so all this advice here, just, you know, just just be aware. Like, it's not like I've done this for many, like I, ha- I haven't seen enough different viewpoints to know for sure if this works all the time, but this is what has worked for us. And so I'll speak kind of authoritatively from our perspective. And at this point, we've done millions of dollars of enterprise deals at this point. We closed like large six-figure deals, multi-year deals, deals with Fortune 5 companies. So it's, we've had success using our approach and using our software. So maybe this is, so I can at least sort of say like, this works for us, maybe it works for you. But you asked for big picture things. One I actually kind of touched on, which is that I think a bottom-up sales process is vastly easier than a top-down sales process. So the fact that engineering has already tried our product and liked it and then asked for it means that when the sales process gets kicked off, more often than not, we are just sort of taking orders. Like we are helping procurement buy the software and not selling the company or selling some high-level decision maker on the software and trying to get them to inflict it on their uh, reports. That's also how we do sales as well. Like we we never do any cold outreach. I don't think we've ever really tried to sell it to someone who wasn't already interested in it. And in many ways, I think we kind of took inspiration from Slack because I feel like that was a lot of their early growth as well was the engineering teams using it by like liking it, wanting to use it, other teams hearing about it. And then, and then it's just a matter of filling an order, um, so to speak, rather than having to do cold outreach and, and pitching and stuff like that, which I guess I've, I've only done sales as a founder from that perspective as well. But I did work at an agency as my first job out of college at a web development agency and we were going out and pitching and making proposals and replying to RFPs. Dude, that was so much work. And most of it led to absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I love this bottom-up approach to sales as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just a nicer way to be. And I, I think if I think especially if you're a bootstrapped company, it makes life a lot easier. Like the, the sales process is much simpler when they're already sold on the thing. It's easier on from your side, and I also think you're more likely to succeed. Like it feels like to me, getting a tool, selling a tool from the top of the org chart, and then having that decision get made, and then having it sort of trickle down, feels like a recipe for bad fit. Like it, it, you could imagine, like this software is being foisted on you by someone two levels above you in the org chart, and you're like, oh, I don't even like this tool. It doesn't do what I wanted to do, or it doesn't do what we were trying to accomplish. I feel like it will probably lead to worse outcomes, uh, that approach. 
I'm curious, you know, I, I, I don't want to oversimplify the sales process because we do have a lot of times when, you know, that person on the engineering team or even that team and their manager really like Geocodio, for example, but then they have to sell it to their director or their VP and they bring us in to help sell it. And it's not just like that they like it and then a PO shows up. That does happen. And that is awesome when that happens. But rarely does that happen. And more so there is some sort that there's not only like basically we are helping that team sell the product. And then, of course, yeah. there's there's the whole negotiation side of things. Mm-hmm. Um which speaking back to Founder Summit was kind of fun because I got to live one of those Twitter threads where people ask, what could you give a talk on with no notice? And I did that on negotiations when you, your talk was unable to happen, mm. um, which was pretty fun. And so I'm curious, like, what are your experiences with when, like, do, do you have that happen when a team needs you to help sell the rest of the organization on Tuple? Um, that is totally like a high leverage opportunity i would say so that does happen with us so often it is a um an engineer somewhere towards the bottom of the org chart trying to sell it to their team lead or a team lead trying to sell it to a director or vp or something and those are pretty critical conversations actually like that 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 affects that can have a big impact and so the main thing we've done around this is we made a thing we called the boss page which helps is like basically like our best attempt to sell tuple to someone a little bit further up the org chart where it talks about the benefits of pair programming like what's likely to cut like the the benefits a slightly higher level manager might care about and also answers some common objections or questions that people would have and i think there's a lot more i think there's more we could do here like this is sort of just a simple like one pager that we send to people as their trial is ending saying hey if you want some help selling this to your boss here's something we made but I think we could go even further on that. So you just you just touched on something that I think is a key part of this, which is letting people try it for free or very cheaply before they need, you know, to be able to use like the corporate credit card or or you know get a PO for it or whatnot. So you mentioned that after the free trial. So so what is the sort of tuple model from that perspective? Um, right now we have a fourteen day free trial with no credit card required. And you mentioned right now you have that. I'm curious, has that changed over time? Yes, it's changed several times, actually. So immediately before that, it was a 14-day trial with credit card required up front, which we switched away from because so many of our customers don't actually have a company credit card. So it was like, hey, I want to try this tool. Oh, it needs a credit card. Let me go ask my boss for the credit card. Oh, I haven't tried the thing that I'm asking for the credit card for which is awkward. And people have this sort of discomfort around, oh, well, what if you start charging my card and I'm not aware of it or you like I might forget. And so we we moved to this this current model, which has been popular and I'm 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 happier with. But even before that, um, we experimented with a number of different ways of getting people into the product. Uh, so in the very early days, we actually charged a hundred dollars flat for your first month for unlimited usage. And then we would start building by user after that month was up. And that was sort of intentionally a high bar that we set where we, we made it a little bit. You sort of had to sh- sort of show com- some commitment to get into the product. And we did that because we, wa- we didn't want to grow too fast at the time. Like we were just like, uh, we were getting exposure to lots of different environments and user requests and things like that. And we didn't want to get overwhelmed with new people coming in the door. And we also wanted people to try to take the trial very seriously. So it slowed things down. Like we had fewer trials for sure. 
but it was kind of interesting in that our trial conversion rate was super high. It was like 60% or something because like people are like, well, we paid a hundred bucks. We have to try this thing now. And so we didn't have, we had very few of those trials where it's like, oh, they never really got started. They never really tried it. And then even before that, in the very earliest days, I was pre-selling this, the tool by the year. And so I would say like, we're looking for like, you know, a core group of teams to become our, our initial users. And so we want people that are really committed and are willing to like stick with us as we improve this thing. So if, if you're interested, you have to like pay, you know, per seat per year to get in. That's really interesting because I, I feel like I hear in that, that you have learned a lot about how teams acquire software. Yeah, for sure. That was, I mean, that was the big learning for me. I, I originally thought that the customers for Tuple were going to be freelancers, just like individual developers working with clients or something. And I, I, I was like, it didn't even occur to me <laughs> that like, no, no, your ideal customer is a whole bunch of developers on a team, obviously. And it just didn't click. And so there was like, there was a lot of learning that went on as we, as we actually launched and saw who was using it and, how, and then how they bought it. And, you know, me being like, can't you just go put the credit card in? And they'd be like, no, no, we can't go put the credit card in. So when you have those people who are using the the $100 free trial, which sounds like it was like, the, I mean, the thing about Tuple is you have this network effect, right? Like the more people within the organization are using it, the more value the organization is getting out of it, right? Like if you're the only one For using sure. Tuple in your organization, you do not have anyone to Tuple with in the organization. So like you mm -hmm. need at least one other one other person to use it with, ideally a lot. And when you had that $100 for the trial level, I'm curious, do you know who was making that purchase at that point? Um, do I know who? Well, like who was actually putting in the credit card? Because you said the next step you switched to having credit card retrial, credit card required for a free trial. And that didn't really work because the people who wanted to try it didn't have the credit card. So it sounds like there was a shift in the buyer when you changed from paid trial to free trial with credit card. Weirdly enough, people would sometimes DM me and say, I wanted to try Tuple so badly that I paid for the $100 myself on my personal card. Wow. Yeah. Which is cool. I mean, it's a vote of confidence, right? That was like awesome. Our reputation was really good. And so like people wanted to try the software, but it was also like, okay, that seems wrong. People probably shouldn't be shelling out $100 personally to try our software. I mean, I hope they got reimbursed later. Hopefully. Although it's like, you know, it's one of those things where getting a hundred bucks back is probably not quite worth it from the company, you know? That is really interesting. So then when you shifted to free trial credit card required, were you thinking that people would continue to use their personal cards or they that did? That happened a lot because they still didn't have a company credit card and they still wanted to try the software. It just got a bit easier. It got cheaper basically. Whereas before they would like eat the hundred bucks to try it or slash get reimbursed. Now they would put their personal card down and then be like, okay, I have to remember to swap this out for the company card if we like it. And so a thing we kept seeing happen was people would try it on one credit card and swap like right the day before the trial was supposed to end or cancel. And we'd be like, oh no, why'd you cancel? And they'd be like, oh no, I liked it. We just are waiting on approval to use the company credit card. And so we have to wait for that to get, get a yes on that before I can go grab the card and put it in. So let's get down to like nitty gritty here. How did you figure that insight out that what was happening was that people were putting in their personal card and then either canceling it or maybe even doing a chargeback or and then trying to get it switched onto their personal card. Take me into how that insight developed that the people basically you need to sell this within the organization don't have access to a credit card. Um, I don't remember exactly how I got that insight. 
I would say that we are pretty, especially in the early days, I was very aggressive about talking to, not aggressive, but I was, you know, I was trying to talk to everyone or like email everyone. So like if we had a failed trial, like that, if a trial canceled that looked like it was good, I would email them and say, hey, what was going on? Or, and I think we even had automated emails for when people would cancel or trials wouldn't succeed. Or we were sort of like, we have all these like customer feedback traps built into the product and built into the process so that we're sort of always asking people like what's going on. And also at this time where we were experimenting with like the $100 upfront approach, I was DMing people a lot on Twitter. I, I, I knew all our customers basically in those days and it had sort of contact with almost everybody. And so I was just close to them. Like I was, I, was, I was in contact with them quite a bit and friends of mine would like, you know, be working at some company and they would, and they would message me like, Hey, just so you know, like I want to try Tuple, but I don't have a car. I don't have a credit card or like, this is a deal breaker or like, Hey, I tried it and I paid for it myself. Yeah. A friend of mine just like said, Hey, by the way, that's right. That came from like, a, I think it was a Twitter DM. Hey, I, I paid the hundred dollars out of pocket because I wanted to try it so bad. But just so you know, this is probably hurting your adoption. Interesting. So when you shifted between those sort of acquisition models, did you head to head test them against each other or did you go, okay, from one day to the next, you, you changed the model? We just swapped. Yeah. I think there's value in A-B testing stuff, but I'm not sure we had the volume to like do like a statistically significant test or really the willingness, like the interest. We were sort of just like, this this model has worked for us for a little bit, but like this just seems like a better fit. And that might have been foolish in retrospect. There are times I think about going back to that thing, that model, because yeah, we got fewer trials, but the conversion rate was so high and the engagement was really high. And it was like people felt bought in in a way that signing up for free trial does not make you feel bought in. And so there are some big benefits into having like a very open, permissive trials, and there are downsides too. And so I, I, I would be interested almost in an A-B test between no credit card required, long free trial versus like, yeah, no, you have to pay us $100 to even try this thing. Like go back to that and just see like, what, what does that look like these days as we have more reputation? Yeah, that would be really, really interesting. I mean, so you mentioned this, the strength of the Tuple brand, and I think something else that's probably going on that I'm curious about your thoughts on is, you know, you have people who have been using Tuple at their jobs for maybe like, you know, years at this point. Um, so when did you guys launch? Um, launched. We will be four years old next month, We, but our first eight months were, yeah, a little more than three years ago. Is that it? Yeah. Dude, I feel like you, you like you're, you're legends of the indie, like software world, like quite frankly, have probably you know, after Basecamp, like resigned their position as the leaders of the movement, I feel like it's almost you guys who are leading it. And you're <laughs> only like four years old. What is this? Like, <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. well, yeah, there was this, <laughs> there was this event where a lot of people started working remotely. That happened a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah, that thing. Yeah, I feel like yeah. I vaguely heard about that. Yeah. So you could, we, you could argue we've had some tailwinds. So, okay, I was going to ask something else, but I want to go in on that for a second. So, you started out with this, you had this pay us in, in upfront for a year period, which was your first eight months. And then you shifted to pay us a hundred bucks for a month. So then, mm -hmm. so if your first eight months, if we're kind of making a timeline here, was pay us for a year, then you went to a hundred dollars for a one month unlimited trial. How long did that period last? Uh, six months, maybe. Somewhere okay, there, maybe, so maybe now we're, we're 14 months-ish in, yep. and then you switched to free trial, credit card required. How long did that last? A long time, uh, years. So did that shift around like 2020? 
period then? Uh, no, actually, it was. I mean, it was this. It was this year. I think it was a few oh. months ago, or, la- or end of last year. Yeah. Oh. Very recently. That the one where we shipped a note to no credit card was yeah, yeah was six, less than six months ago. Oh, interesting, interesting. But so I wonder if if you've had this like you know all of this growth over the past couple. I I'm I'm still like in shock that it's only four years old. That's <laughs> just that's just not true. Like I'm sorry, I reject that. Um, you have people who are moving from one job to another who probably used Tuple at their previous job. Yes. And then I feel like we've all had that experience of going to a new job and they're not using some like modern, you know, tool that you're used to using. And you're like, oh my God, you guys are in the dark ages. You aren't using like this thing. I can't do my work without it. You have to try it. And then like selling it within the organization yep. when they get like, do you like, have, have you heard anecdotes about that happening? All the time. Yeah, that happens a lot, which is great. One nice thing about selling to developers is they are passionate about tools and also passionate about sharing them and like arguing for them. So yeah, we get people emailing us like probably every week maybe saying like, oh, I used Tuple at this place and now I'm here and I'm trying to get them to adopt it. I'm trying to get us to buy some licenses and that sort of thing. That's awesome. And like the other thing running undercurrent of that too is it's not just that they are passionate about it, but that companies value their developers more than other employees for better or for worse like making the developers efficient is like you you can't really find any executive or vp that would argue against that right like it's it's sort of like you know straight yeah. in the heart right oh well this will make the developers more efficient and they're like sign me up um and so you've kind of got these two currents really going for you or as probably as justin jackson would say wave of you know of things in your favor that lead to adoption of it yeah for sure and if you take that and then add on like a viral component where people invite each other to it and inviting people makes the monthly price go up it's a it's a very good uh, business model i think yeah has a lot of things going for it that sounds pretty sweet so i think we've only hit the first point on your list (laughs) let's keep going what do you got next yeah so I think a big shift that happened as I got more experienced with enterprise sales was realizing how much I could say no to. Ooh, I love this. Especially when you have so much leverage. Yeah. And so there's a sort of natural tendency, which is like, oh my gosh, I want them to buy it. I need to agree to everything. And what it turns out is like procurement and legal and everyone will sort of make, will make requests of you that are not deal breakers. And so it's natural to assume that everything is a deal breaker. And if you don't do every single thing they ask of you, it's not going to happen. And in reality, it's more like, it's probably like 30% of them are deal breakers. You can probably more often than not reject the request and still get the deal done. And so the first, so like one lesson is lose some deals or like get some deals close to to loss. So like one, one trick that I would do is people would be like, oh, hey, can you fill out the security audit? And I would, it's a classic one, right? And I would say, sorry, no, I do have this detailed page I wrote that has um, lots of information about our security practices. If you have any questions that aren't answered here, feel free to follow up and I'll update the page. And that like got rid of like 60, 70% of requests for like custom security audits. Most of the time they would go, oh yeah, yeah. People would say, oh yeah, okay, I think that'll work. Hold on. And like someone would sign off on it and it would be okay. When a big company buys a piece of software, there's this giant checklist 
that they have created over the years so they don't get burned so they like it's like and like that their legal department makes them do that procurement makes them do there are all these items on this thing like security audits terms of service custom red lines in things payment terms background checks for employees pilots demos there's this giant checklist most of them are not critical i would say a lot of them are not critical and so if you just do everything they ask you it'll it's the smoothest version. It's the easiest like way to get them to just like get through the process. But it's kind of hell on your side. And like none of this stuff is as good or as useful as working on your product and actually making it better or talking to more customers. And so I would recommend people say like say no to things and then ask, is that a deal breaker? Because you could just ask. Like they're like, oh, can we get a volume discount on the whatever? And I'd be like, oh, sorry, like we don't offer discounts until this many seats. Let me know if that's a deal breaker. You're just sort of you're throwing it at them and just saying like, hey, let me like tell me if this is going to sink the deal. And if it's not going to sink the deal, no, you can't have it. It lets you gather intel, and over time, you'll sort of learn what things tend to be deal breakers and what things don't. So let's demystify this a little bit, especially for founders who don't have a ton of experience with sales or big enterprises with giant checklists. You said about. 30% of those things are actually required and you can push back on 70% of them. What are those examples of things that you push back on? I actually made a list of things I've said no to and still gotten a deal done. <laughs> this is going to be good. <laughs> yeah. Discounts. Procurement is basically always going to ask you for a discount. Why so, not? So this is, this is I'm just going to pause you on this list. So I have heard, and I think... I don't know if it's from Patrick McKenzie or somebody else, that basically when you're dealing with like giant company procurement people, they are basically incentivized to get like something like five to a 10% discount on every deal, every renewal. And that can A, be a point of um, negotiation where you get extra stuff in exchange for that. Or if you are already, for example, discounting your annual plan, simply updating the invoice to make it clear that there is a discount in it, and then you don't have to discount further. So it mm -hmm. like they are hitting their metrics on the invoice. Totally. Yeah. You can make this easier on yourself by inflating the, the base price and then giving them a fake discount down to whatever actually you want to sell it for. And this is kind of like the game that everyone, that a lot of people play. <laughs> um, but you don't have to play it. You could just be like, the price is the price and we don't do discounts. Sorry. Or you could say like, we offer discounts for purchases above this size. That's it. And it's hard to say, like, it, it, that's one of those things that's hard to say no to. Because like you have this vague sense of like, if I don't give this person what they want, they're not going to pay me $50,000. And I can tell you from experience, a lot of the times they still are. They, they have, there's no cost to them to ask. They will, they will almost always ask because it's, it's just pure upside for them. But this gets to another one of my points. Procurement wants to get the deal done. Procurement has been asked by engineering to buy something. Engineering has more social capital in the company than procurement does, unless you are dealing with a very dysfunctional organization. So your average bottom of the org chart, you know, procurement specialist is not going to want to go to the VP of engineering and say, I didn't buy that tool you asked for because they wouldn't give me a 10% discount. Right. That's not going to happen. Right. And so if they say, can I have a 10% discount? And you say, no, they're not going to walk away from the deal almost ever. And especially if it's a product that they have been using for two, three years now that is well integrated into the engineering pipeline or process. Oh, yeah. Like they're going to ask because they're incentivized to ask. Yeah, yeah. But it's totally. not going to tank the renewal or the deal. I mean, most of the time, if it turns out your product is not as useful as they thought it was going to be and engineering has said, yeah, we'd like it, but it's not critical. Well, now you might need a discount. It depends a lot on what the actual situation is, right? Like if 
oh, we use it occasionally. We like it versus, you know, we get this done. We want this. This is, you know, please renew this, you know, signed Mary, VP of engineering. Like <laughs> there's a difference depending on what the context is for sure. But if you're not, if you're not occasionally syncing a deal or nearly syncing a deal, you don't actually know where the boundaries are. Like you're not going to learn what's critical and like what actually are deal breakers and what are things they're just asking for because they may as well. I mean, this is the equivalent of, you know, being in a sort of traditional marketplace and you are, you know, this, I mean, this is effectively like bargaining at this point and then you just walk away. Yeah. And it's just like, as, as someone new to sales, you will tend to, this advice is like targeted towards people that kind of becoming like getting into this, like, you know, probably engineers who are sort of forced reluctantly into sales. And I will say that you are, you're used to a world where if someone asks you to do a thing, you should probably do the thing. And sales is just like everything is negotiable. Your default mental mo- like map is is probably kind of wrong, and so I would encourage you to correct in a slightly different direction. So here's some more of the things I've said no to, where the deal still got done. Discounts, active user pricing, like only charge me for like the number of users I'm using. Filling out a custom security audit, doing background checks on our employees, a free pilot, uh, product changes, a custom demo, scheduling a call at all, like talking to something, or selling through a reseller. Interesting. I'm curious, what are things that you have said no to that were a deal breaker? Procurement generally wants to get the deal done. So sometimes it's price. Sometimes you you ask for a thing and you say no and they say, we can't do it at this price. So occasionally price becomes the the deal breaker. But it's actually, while procurement wants to get the deal done, legal doesn't care as much. Legal has a weird place in the thing where it's like, because legal is protecting the legal interests of the company, they have a bit more social capital. Um, and are more able to sync a deal and are less concerned with pissing off the VP of engineering. And so if legal says you have to have this claim, this line in here that says you're like absolving us of liability in this situation, uh, that can be a deal breaker. Like if you don't agree to the legal red lines, and this also is a negotiation, like there's some things, it's it's the same thing where some are going to be deal breakers and some are not. But I would say you're more likely to bump into stuff where they'll just go, yes, all right, this is required for us because we don't sign any contracts that don't have this clause. Um, you're you're going to bump into them in the negotiation of the contract, the terms. You know, and speaking of negotiation, I'm I'm reminded of um, something that I often think of, which is that you end up in cases, especially in, I guess, organizations with not tons of process, but there's there's still procurement and legal and everything involved, where people just want to have an edit on something, like they feel like they're supposed to negotiate, they feel like they're supposed to bargain in some way. Um, oh, yeah. It reminds me of Might you know well. a, a designer friend of mine, and there's a word of this. She talked about how when she would send designs to a client, she would intentionally put something you know in a, a button in like bright orange, just so the client had something to correct. And I feel like very often you mentioned invoicing terms. I feel like invoicing terms is that one. Like if I get a contract back that only has one edit, chances are it's changing invoicing terms from 30 days to 45 days. Mm-hmm. Or like there's just like these like small things that people will always want to talk about. But then as as we kind of mentioned before, like the role of leverage in this and how you can play these these things off of one another as well. So that thing of including some sort of request or item that you know is going to get rejected is something you can do in contracts as well. So whenever possible, if you can, I recommend... Um, starting with your own agreement. Like that's one question that will come up is like, whose paper are we going to use? Like, are you going to start from your agreement and will redline it or the other way around? You don't have a legal team most likely. So I recommend asking to start with yours and have it sent over to their legal team. You can use Y Combinator's SAS agreement. It's quite good. 
So good. Um, we we used that for years before we actually got our got our own lawyer. Yep. So yeah, I would start from that and then just edit it for your needs. But then I would add a bunch of really really friendly clauses to you. So like you agree to that we can do a case study and we can mention your name publicly and we can put your logo on the website and you'll do an interview with us. Uh, you agree that every year your price is going to go up automatically by 10%, that your payment terms are 15 days. You can start with this stuff that no one is going to accept, knowing they're going to redline it. And you give them that thing that like, oh, they've done their due diligence. They reviewed the contract. You can put these things in there that are like long shots that you're expecting them to reject. And it like, gives them that sense of like, okay, I, I've done good lawyerly things. I've protected the company's interests by spotting these things and removing them. And then some of them will get through. Sometimes I put clauses in there that were like, uh, they're like they they agree to, it and I'm like, oh wow, nice, okay, that's that's great for us. <laughs> so I, I agree on that. That like logo and you know mention and case study is is it a really common one that is sort of a awesome if it gets through, but oh well if not. You mentioned invoicing terms. You know there was like three of them there, and I'm curious, are there any more in there that you would suggest people adding on to either their contract or probably a good point to note. If you're not doing contracts with people, at the very least having a terms of service that they are checking off that they agree to, but more often like an actual contract, especially for bigger companies, have one. Mm. Um, and using using that Y Combinator agreement. So like, what are those other things that you throw in there? Um, I think I've touched on the main ones. I usually start, I think another big one is the limitation of liability. This is like a, a thing that gets fought over quite a bit. And legal departments are very much on the on lookout for is who is liable when and for what, and who is going to like give each other protection and defend each other from various things. And so the Y Combinator agreement has, I believe, a very startup friendly take on this, which will almost almost always get edited down or rejected by the other side. And so I think that's a good one to leave in there as just like a red herring almost, or just you know give the legal team something to do. Um, but yeah, the other ones like mostly around publicity and marketing and mentioning their name, and then like an escalator clause, like hey, this price ought, like this agreement auto renews unless you give us ninety days notice, and when it does, the price automatically increases by this amount. Is another good one to throw in there. Have you like played those clauses against each other? For example, someone is asking for, let's say they're asking for a discount, or they are asking for, let's say better, you know, they, they don't want to do. 30-day payments, they want to do 60-day payment terms, and then you play that off of, okay, we'll do that if we can use your logo on our website. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, you can try. I, that has not worked that well for me, though, honestly. A lot of the times, you're dealing with legal when you're negotiating the contract, but like determining who can use the company's logo is like a marketing thing or like a PR or comms thing. And so sometimes they're like, yeah, we can't offer this. You'll have to negotiate this separately with our PR department or something. And so I haven't had a ton of success being like, we'll give you this if you give us this sort of thing. I think there's just like this slight human tendency of being like, well, they asked for 10 things. If we said no to all 10, we're kind of jerks. So like, what's a couple that we can let slide? Yeah, I think it's also that that element of like social capital and like who has the capital in the company and legal, it might be stronger than the communications team, for example. True. Yeah. And again, it also comes down to like, how badly does the company want to get the deal done? And how badly do you want that thing? Are you going to walk if they won't let you use their logo? Because if you're going to walk, if, if they won't, and they really want the software, I bet you can get the logo. But if they kind of want the software and you're not going to walk, it's a lot harder. 
Something I'm curious about your experience with it that I've experienced is insurance. So this often feels like something in contracts that feels pretty uh, set in stone that it says, you know, it's pretty common for there to be like, you know, five different kinds of insurance required. And it says you need to have, you know, general liability. You might need to have, umbra- you know, umbrella liability, excess coverage. You might need to have employer's comp, you know, worker's comp, like Maybe automotive, yeah. like, or um, I mean, especially, you know, in software, having cyber um, errors and omissions and, you know, a cyber policy on that. And something that I have felt or I guess I used to feel afraid about in the past was upping your insurance coverage can be really expensive. And like, and it looks very like this is what it is in in the contract, right? When you get it or those edits back from them. But you can just reply and say like, our policy is, you know, 1 million, 2 million, 3 million for this. We don't carry this insurance. We don't carry automotive insurance because we don't have any corporate vehicles. And more often than not, I have found that to be acceptable like, or I say something to the effect of, you know, if X limit on this is a hard requirement, we are happy to discuss that with our insurance company and add the cost of that additional insurance onto this contract. Yeah, that's a good one. And then pretty much then they're like, oh, no, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've also experienced them sort of folding on insurance requirements. It's kind of like a wish list more than hard. Do they really care if it's 5 million versus 4 million? Eh, probably not. Not really. Although I will say it's a very easy requirement to hit. We use Founder Shield and we just like tell them what we want and they send us like a, a group, like a like a collective policy kind of thing. It was not very much work and it was not actually very expensive for the limits that we needed. And so this was kind of like a one day ish task to like get a bunch of insurance that let us say yes, we have this on on contracts. Agreed. We actually use Founder Summit ourselves as well. Or sorry, Founder Shield. Founder Shield. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're good. All the things named Founder. So what else is on this list? I mean a million things. All right, I'm gonna, I'm going to give I'm going to give some some terrible legal advice here. This is not legal advice. <laughs> this is not legal advice. This is consult this is your advice, lawyer. <laughs> this is advice that I think is probably pretty good 99% of the time and then 1% of the time will be catastrophic for you. And so <laughs> just just heads up, which is a contract that you sign with another company is enforceable in court. So you have to imagine like will we get sued? If, if this thing is going to be enforced by a judge in a courtroom with lawyers involved that are making thousands of dollars per hour. And so sometimes you look over a list of things in a contract and you go, is it likely that if we slipped on this thing or like had a million dollars less coverage on this thing that we are going to get dragged into court and sued for breach of contract? And you should ask like, and the answer is probably not most of the time. Um so I, I think this is my like cavalier startup attitude, which is like if you're trying to get a business off the ground and like I, I wouldn't worry that like the reason you die is because you uh, missed a term in their terms of service and did not technically comply with it. And then they found out and took you to court and sued you and broke your company that way. I think the number of startups that have died that way is probably very, very small. And so 99% of the time, I wouldn't worry about it quite as much like every single beautiful line in the contract. This is not how we do it now. Now we're like a legit company. We have a legit lawyer. We like do all the right things. We push back where we need to. We follow all these things. But if you're like a brand, if you're a two-person company trying to sell this tool to an enterprise and they're like, you you need to do this really weird esoteric thing. You need to conduct a, a, a training every so often on making sure that your supply chain is not using forced human labor. And you go, 
sure yeah we'll do that and then like you have a two-minute conversation with your co-founder on a calendar invite and say yes checked compliance done that might be okay i think it's also to like important to note that like if there is a conflict about something in the contract like everybody wants to avoid court because as you said it's extremely expensive to the point where like a lot of big enterprise contracts, like they, they said it has to go into arbitration. Like, so you start with negotiating, which is talking about the problem and finding a solution to it there. And then if you can't do it, then you go into arbitration, which is, you know, you have or mediation rather. And then only after you have failed negotiation, you have failed mediation, then do you go into the legal system, right? And so like if there was some massive problem, like it is unlikely that, you know, sort of knock on wood, right, that it ends up in court. And hopefully you have built a relationship with them and they trust that you are a well-intentioned person who maybe just screwed something up and there is some other way to solve this rather than a courtroom. Yeah, exactly. And that this advice is like coming from someone that has not been sued, so, Same. Yes, I guess I should. I, I imagine some some number of years I will look back on this conversation and go, "Wow." What we did get a cease and desist list uh, once. That was probably the closest okay. we ever yeah. for for a side project. Yeah, a mobile app one. So anyway, I guess my I guess my <laughs> you probably won't get sued is my uh, my high level advice. And do with that information what you will. Cool. What's next? Um, let's talk about pricing. I learned a weird thing when I started doing these deals, which is that a hundred thousand dollars a year is not a lot of money. Can you break that down? Yes. So as a person, $100,000 a year is a lot of money. Like you're a, an individual, you have a job, you make $100,000 a year, you make a lot of money. You're doing great. If I was like, hey, you need to pay me an extra $100,000 this year, you'd say, what? Absolutely. There's no way I can pay you an extra $100,000 this year. hundred grand a year as a person is a lot of money. $100,000 a year to a company of a decent size, not a lot of money. So like, it is very reasonable to give an invoice to a company that says, I would like you to pay me $100,000 a year and have them not even blink because it is less than their lunch budget. You have to really shift your mentality around money and dollars and value when you start dealing with organizations that are bigger than 20 people, let's say. You mentioned a lot of this advice in the beginning is stuff that will break somebody's brain, especially if they come into this with an engineering mindset where yes, everything makes sense and is logical. And yep. this is absolutely not logical on the surface. Yeah, But then it actually is when you think about all of the work that you not only put into serving these customers, but also this sort of all of this gymnastics that goes into actually delivering the product to them and and all of these other pieces that go into it um i would almost phrase it differently actually which is that a hundred thousand dollars a year is just is something that if a company has a hundred engineers paying a hundred grand a year is something that they would do to solve a problem with like medium low annoyance they are like a hundred person company is solving is throwing much 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 more money than that at thing at like not huge problems, not the, even the most critical problems of the business or the most important expenses in the business. I, I think it's it's kind of like useful to think about salaries, for example, just to kind of give you a data point. If there's a hundred engineers in a company, that company is paying twenty million dollars a year in payroll, probably more, like twenty million dollars a year. You can be point oh 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 five of that and charge a hundred grand a year, and it's 
and like it's just it's just not a big deal. Like the numbers they're looking at and the numbers they're used to dealing with, especially because now they have a procurement department, hundred grand a year, standard standard software cost, hundred grand a year, absolutely all day long. And you know the thing to think about with that is that they have that twenty million dollar investment in their engineers. And you know, speaking of like Tuple, for example, to spend a hundred thousand dollars to get a much higher return on that $20 million investment, it yeah. might be a very small percent of that total cost. But even if they get a 1% or a 5% efficiency improvement, or they save those developers X number of hours per week, which is more the category that Geocodio falls in, like that is incredibly valuable to them. Yeah, totally. And I wish they would think about that exactly like you placed it, like you said it. like, like. 100 grand a year is half a percent on a 20 million dollar payroll. And so it would be great if I could just say Tuple makes you 0.6% uh, of a percent uh, more efficient and therefore you should clearly pay me 100 grand a year and they would go, "Yes, that makes perfect logical sense. I agree." It doesn't quite work that way. It'd be nice if that argument like resonated better, but in the in the bigger scheme that that does work out. Yes, exactly. If you if you're making them more efficient, the ROI can be can be there for big numbers. Yeah, absolutely. What's next on the list? Um, do annual pricing with quarterly true ups. So charge a big amount per year and every quarter, like, so, well, first of all, have pricing that gets, goes up as the company gets more value as they use your product. Uh, expansion revenue is the best kind of revenue. So if your pricing model does not allow your most successful customers to continually be paying you more money, your pricing sucks. And so what we do is we do, we'll say like, they'll say, we want, we want to buy a hundred seats and we'll go, great. Here's a, the cost for a hundred seats. By the way, if you use more, no problem. We don't need to do a whole negotiation. We're going to put this in the order form. We're going to put this in the agreement so that once a quarter, if you go over, we'll charge you a prorated amount for the additional seats that you started using so that we don't need to do like a whole... We're not just going to like float those seats for an entire year and then catch up a year from now. And we don't need to do a whole like new agreement negotiation. We're just going to send you an invoice for those prorated amounts. Interesting. I think it's always interesting for me. It's like we don't do per seat pricing. Um, but we do do like volume-based pricing, for example, which mm-hmm. is sort of a – like I feel like per seat pricing is the most most typical form of expansion revenue and, you know, they're getting more value out of it. So you mm-hmm. – they pay you more. There's also, you know, volume-based, which is where we are. And I'm trying to think if there's any other sort of way of having that like expansion built in. So the high-level term for this is value metric. Um, and I think your pricing needs a value metric of some kind. Which I think the, the way to figure it out is just like if the customer started getting ten times as much value from the software, what would they be doing more of, or using more of, or seeing more of that you can charge for? So is it is it compute time? Is it requests? Is it users? Is it you know tasks they can have in the system? Um, figuring out the answer to that question is pretty critical. For Tuple's growth, a lot of the times our expansion growth in a given month will be like two or three times what our new MRR is. So the, the business is growing like three or four times faster because we have a good expansion revenue mechanism. Yeah. And I think the thing I love about that too is that you are your incentives are aligned with your customer, right? Because the more yes. value they are getting out of it, the more you are charging them and you know, there are some products like gyms are the classic example of this that they expand their revenue by their customers not using their product. And it creates this conflict of incentives between the company and the customers. 
Um, but something like expansion revenue, you know, charging for more seats, that aligns you with your customers and encourages you to keep serving them well and have a good relationship with them and also for them to keep using it because they're getting more and more value out of it. Mm-hmm. It also has to make intuitive sense to the customer. Like I use Bear Metrics and their pricing has always kind of irked me a little bit where Bear Metrics charges you, Bear Metrics is an analytics tool for like diving into your financial data, like your subscription metrics, like churn and average customer value and things like that. And Bear Metrics charges you a base amount and then it increases as you make more money, as your MRR goes up, as your revenue goes up. And that has always felt weird to me because it was like, Bear Metrics doesn't make my revenue go up. It tells me stuff about my revenue, but it doesn't actually increase the thing I care about. So like, it has to it has to kind of work. Whereas if your team is using Tuple and you add three more engineers to it, it's because you like the, you like it and you want them to use it too. And then they like it. So it sort of, it, it makes sense. It tracks. You're like, yeah, we're using the tool more. We're getting more value from it. We should pay more. Whereas just being like, oh, you're making more money than last year. We're going to charge you more money now. It's like, well, but you didn't, you're not, that's not your value. That's just like a value that you decided on. I think it's Barometrics that I, I, and they are redoing their pricing right now. I've seen a couple friends post a rather long email they got from Barometrics on their pricing changes that does not say what the pricing changes are, but I'm curious. I bet they have a sense that their pricing was not aligned. I think they're struggling with some pricing stuff right now. And I think that email was a big swing and a miss, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So we've got about five minutes left. We usually think that, uh, you know, people listen to Software Social while they're out, say, running 5K, and they are probably approaching 10K at this point. So I apologize mm. to your legs, dear listener, or to your mm. dog who is tired of walking around the block uh, so many times. So can you give us a just a, like a quick point by point of those remaining items that, that were on the... All right, I'm going to do them all lightning style. Yes, lightning lightning rounds. All right, here's what's rest. Here's the rest of things. Don't agree to a custom contract that does not have a big price tag on it. Make sure you negotiate that up front before you dive into the terms and and figure out what you agree on. Put your price on on your website. It's good to have an anchor there. Starts at $20,000 a year, so you don't people wasting your time. Charge more for single sign-on, even though it annoys people. Put that in your enterprise tier. Charge a lot for it. Um, Put an expiration date on your quotes so that procurement feels a bit of pressure to get them done quickly. Um, offer quarterly payments instead of discounts. If people ask for a big discount, say, uh, we can't do that, but you can pay in pieces if that helps. Uh, if you do offer a discount, ask for something in return. Try to do that negotiation that we talked about. Like, hey, can we feature you in a whatever? Um, keep in mind, 100 engineering org pays $20 million a year in software or in uh, salaries. Um, it could be useful when you're dealing with procurement to say you don't know what you're doing and ask for advice. I had a procurement person from Shopify basically walk me through how they buy stuff and he was very helpful and it helped us get that deal done. Ask what will help the deal get done faster. Often there's shortcuts or price points that get the deal done easily. For example, some places require a C-level sign-off for price points above X. Make sure you know what that is, ask about it and try to come in under that. If you don't get a hard no, you don't know where the limits are. Uh, it's often useful to tell somebody you're a tiny startup when you get a security or an IT request saying like, hey, can you fill out this 100-page security audit? Say, no, sorry, we're just three people, blah, blah, blah. Don't get a SOC 2 uh, up front. Not worth it. You can get tons of deals done even with giant companies without it. We have um, create a reusable security document rather than filling out bespoke questionnaires. Um, you can often agree to implement things later in a contract. So they say, we need X. You say, we can do this. We can agree to get X done within the next 12 months. And they say, okay, legal cares less about getting the deal done. Use the Y Combinator SaaS agreement. You probably won't get sued. 
Um, always include an escalator clause that increases the price and auto renews. When you eventually try to hire a salesperson, realize that most of them are charming, hardworking, and not that smart. Look around for a smart one instead. <laughs> There's so much good advice in there. Um, so many things I wish we could dive in on. Um, what a tremendous gift to spell all of that out. I feel a little bit obligated to give you some advice at this point oh, and say, Ben, when are we getting the Sales for Founders review newsletter where you start writing the rough draft of your Sales for Founders book? Hmm. That's a good question. So I actually was inspired the other day because Nathan Barry shared that he has a paid email sequence, like a paid email course that he sells. And I think that's an awesome format where like he can sort of like when he feels like it, he adds another email to the sequence. And you're basically buying like for like a hundred bucks, you get like what, however many emails are currently in the sequence and then any additional ones he writes later. And I was thinking this might be a good topic for this where it's like, anytime I'm feeling inspired, I'll pull one of these points off, flesh it out into an email, add it to the sequence. I have my people who are in this position of needing this information, uh, get access to it. That sounds awesome. Hope to see that out there sometime soon. Well, thanks. Until then, you can follow me on Twitter, R00K, and I'll eventually talk about it there if I do it. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for stopping by, Ben. Such a pleasure to talk to you. And I hope that we will get more writing from you on Sales for Founders. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate that. Happy to come by. And that will wrap up this week's episode of Software Social. Colleen will be back with me next week. Make sure to check out this week's sponsor, Cloud Forecast, to manage your AWS bill at cloudforecast.io. Huge thanks to all of our listeners who've become software socialites and support our show. Chris from Chipper CI, the daringly handsome Kevin Griffin, and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality, Dave from Recut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of Brightbits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from The Tiny MBA, Rami from Hovercode and Rocket Gems, Jane and Benedict from UserList, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of Signwell, Corey Haynes of Swipewell, Mike Wade of Crowd Sentry, Nate Ritter of Roomsteals, Anna Mast of SubscribeSense, Jeff Roberts from Outseta, Justin Jackson, MegaMaker, Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics, Matthew from Appointment Reminder, Andrew Culver at Bullet Train, John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems, Richard from Stunning, Josh the Annoyingly Pragmatic Founder, Ben from ConsentKit, John from Credo and Editor Ninja, Cam Sloan, Michael Copper of Nusi Proposals, Chris from URL Box, Callie of Toslet, Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, Lana and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac, Steve of Be Inclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of Keyhero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of Works Cited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Docomatic, Larabels, a community for Larabelle developers underrepresented due to their gender, Brendan from Feederloop, Pascal from Sharpen.page, Lynn Romick from Konbini, Arvid Call, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, Mitchell Davis from RecruitKit.